conversation today is with Reverend Jana Hall Perkins. And Jana is um, a friend, a covenant clergy sister, and a wonderful pastor um, at a church in St. Petersburg. Uh, she has a daughter. Um, she has a child, a little boy on the way. Um, and then she also talks about her experience of miscarriage. So a trigger warning for those who uh, may not be ready for this kind of conversation. She brings deep vulnerability uh, to that experience as we talk about Hannah's birth story, as well as Mary's birth story and Rachel's birth story in the Bible because Jana is steeped in these scriptural stories and really provides new insight as she wrestles with her own experience of grief as a way of preparation and waiting uh, for the coming of the season. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jonna. Hey Jonna, how are you doing? <laughs> Doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. It's really good to see your face, although um, people listening won't get that uh, pleasure because it is an audio uh, only. But I haven't seen you in mm, like over a year. Was it in October? In a little while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has. And a lot has happened for you, which is part of the reason why I thought of you to have this conversation and be able to share some of your own experiences with birth story and um, pregnancy and waiting. And so first of all, congratulations Thank you. on your little one uh, coming. And I'm really excited for... Um, Anaya especially. I mean, you guys too, but yes. I really loved watching Eli become a big brother and I'm sure she's going to be an incredible big sister. Yes. It's, it's definitely been sweet to see her get excited over it already. Does she like ask or like, um, like know that, that there's a baby in mom's tummy or whatever you're telling? She knows and she's very aware. Um, the most recent OB appointment I had, we got to listen to baby's heartbeat. And so I put it on speakerphone and she got to hear it. She was in the car um, and she got to hear it and listen to it. And she was just so excited and she was like yelling and screaming. And it just made the nurse like chuckle. I mean, it was, it was really cute. <laughs> so she's, she's very excited and I think very much aware too. That's so fun. Um, and this excitement is coming after um, a season of loss and grief that isn't over, but um, maybe isn't in its, its sharpest moment um, with a miscarriage that happened before. Yes. Um, so let's see, uh, we lost our, our second baby via miscarriage in June and found out in August that we were pregnant again. And so, uh, definitely a lot of emotions, um, mixed emotions and really just reminding myself that it's okay to embrace all of them, the happiness and joy of this pregnancy, just alongside the continued grief of the loss of our second who will always um, still be, you know, a part of us and a, a part of our story too. So tell me a little bit about um, 
when you found out you were pregnant with that little one, what was that like? How far along were you? Were y'all planning on it? You know, tell me everything. Um, so the, the second one in, in May, June, uh, I actually found out the Thursday before Mother's Day. <laughs> so that made Mother's Day extra special for us, um, finding out that we had our second one on the way. Um, it was pretty uh, early on that when, we, when we found out uh, that we were expecting. So a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. Um, just, you know, really looking forward to it. I think also, though, there was a lot of um, mixed emotions, again, even in finding that out, because it was, it also came about two or so days after um, the death of Ahmaud Arbery that was televised. And so just having, and then of course, you know, going through like not knowing at that time what we would be having and thinking of what life would be like, um, if we had a son and seeing everything unfold on, on TV. And so having these kind of mixed emotions of elatement and excitement, but also kind of frustrating that the world doesn't reflect, I think, um, the kingdom of God in its entirely right, entirety um, right now and, and kind of like how you hold those two intentions. So we had the joy, but we also had um, the frustration and I think nervousness and um, if we're being honest, maybe even a little bit of fear kind of commingled in with all of that too. I, I can't, um, it's hard to tease out all the layers of that emotion. Um, because when, when we lose someone, um, sometimes that, that news that another child is coming can be almost a sense of, um, resurrection in the midst of death and this is such a a public grief but also a personal grief um and then there's also the reality that it's a world that isn't ideal for raising a little one in and um i know that that your family has been very um has been very uh, careful during this time because y'all are at somewhat higher risks um, for your congregations, for yourselves. Um, and so you're also finding this out at a time when you're kind of siloed in a sense. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it also um, made the process of losing our, our second baby via miscarriage um, incredibly difficult uh, because of the COVID policies. And um, so, for example, when we were pregnant with Anaya, uh, Lee, my husband, uh, was just very hands-on at every appointment, um, you know, going all over all the paperwork with me. He's just a very, you know, excited, hands-on um, type of partner, and I'm grateful for that. But it was difficult with our, our second pregnancy and then the loss of it because uh, he wasn't allowed to come in with me uh, for some of the appointments and knowing um, that we're going into an appointment where the news could be devastating, it was hard to not have him physically with me. Um, so he you know, drove me to the appointments and waited outside or waited in the car and I you know, still had him on speakerphone with me during the appointments, but it just really wasn't the same as having him you know, right there by my side. So that, that was really difficult as well. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. I can't, I can't imagine that layer um, because it's one thing for, um, for women when they have a, a partner who might not be as hands-on and they're going to appointments by themselves. It's another thing when you can't have that partner with you. And um, that would be really hard. Yeah, it, it was definitely difficult. When did y'all um, get the sense that something might be wrong? So it was actually very um, back and forth. And so I think that complicated, um, an already complicated situation. And so um, our very first appointment around six weeks, um, they, they couldn't see anything on the ultrasound. And so then kind of started this barrage of questions as to, okay, like what's going on here? Uh, because the blood work is showing one thing, the ultrasound is showing another. Uh, but then they sent that ultrasound um, photo to, um, I guess like one of their specialist type of um, doctors. And then she called back and said, no, we do see something. It's just really small. So maybe you're early on. And so I think, you know, our excitement kind of returned. Um, The nervousness kind of, you know, was at ease a little bit. And um, that happened, that went on for maybe like um, another week. And then we went in for uh, another ultrasound. And on that ultrasound, Uh, they were able to see um, everything but the fetal pole, the fetal pole being the baby. So like the gestational sac and all of that other stuff, um, but without the fetal pole. And so then that kind of like raised red flags. And at that point, I started going in for doctor's appointments every other day to do blood work to see if my uh, HCG levels were rising and they were. And so then we got a call back like, congratulations, your HCG levels are rising. We think everything is great and normal. It just might be too early. And so then, of course, all the fear and nervousness kind of resided again and, you know, kind of turned into this moment of elation and happiness. And then a week later, um, started bleeding and cramping very heavily and um, to the extent that it required a, a trip to the emergency room because it surpassed the level that they told me was normal. And um, during that ultrasound in the emergency room, we could see the baby, um, but there just wasn't a heartbeat. And so that was, of course, really devastating. And the emergency room policy at that time, so it's like June, so we're not too far you know, into COVID-19. And so definitely couldn't have any visitors. Um, so that was tough going through that alone. Um, and a strange kind of detail that I learned is that when you're going through pregnancy loss, miscarriage, um, the, the, um, technician stopped showing you the ultrasound. And so that was strange too, because at the appointment where, um, there was a gestational sac, but no, uh, fetal pole at the OB office, they wouldn't show me (laughs) the ultrasound screen. And then again, in the emergency room. Um, but it was just myself and one nurse. And I think she was like very sympathetic to the situation. And so I kind of asked her, you know, kind of gently, like, I don't want to get you in trouble or anything, but can I really see it? Like, I don't know. It was just kind of important to me to see that. Um, And it was the first time throughout the whole pregnancy where someone said to me, we see a baby. And so I think for me, it was so important for me to be able to see that for myself. And so she just kind of quickly turned it and let me see it um, and then turned it back. And I think for me, in a way, that was a a sense of 
not closure because it was still incredibly painful and the process lasted in its entirety like 10 days. So it felt like being in labor for 10 days, like a lot of cramping and bleeding. Um, but it, it, it kind of, um, in a way, I think it kind of confirmed my sense of um, that this was a real loss. And I think that so many people experiencing a miscarriage, especially first trimester miscarriage, kind of go through this um, process sometimes where they themselves or the people around them are questioning like the validity of the loss, you know, and um, I, I think that's terrible and unfortunate, but I think in a sense, like seeing that and, and seeing it written out on the paperwork um, that there, there was a baby there, there just wasn't any heartbeat, I think kind of validated my sense of, okay, like this, you know, this was a real uh, loss in a sense. Um, but it was very difficult in the days um, following. As I mentioned, it lasted for me about 10 days. Um, so it was very hard and it, it legitimately felt like being in labor for 10 whole days. Um, it was incredibly difficult. So you, you're describing this physical pain of miscarrying and this emotional pain and just the complications around the specific loss of miscarriage where we don't have the connection to the physical in the same way we do with other types of loss. Um, for some people, it can be so healing when you lose um, a loved one in your life to go to a viewing, to be able to see them and say your goodbyes. And um, so I can, I can see how frustrating it would be um, to not to have least seen that screen, to be able to have, have something physical to say goodbye to, even that little, even if it's a little, um, Chris and I used to call them little shrimps in those early stages because they really don't look like babies at that point, but they are like little, yeah, but that little, little dot, that little, you know, movement on the screen, a little space. Yeah, I think it definitely gave a sense of having something to hold on to and um, something to just kind of help with that process of, um, I think it would have been definitely like necessary for me to see that in order to even think about healing for sure. I wonder if you're, you're willing to share some of the, some of the support or things people said that, that were helpful to you in your grief and maybe the things that aren't as helpful. Um, there's, there's a lot of times where I've said, I don't think there's necessarily a right thing to say in moments of grief, but I do think we can put together a pretty good list of the wrong things to say. Um, and so, yeah, I wonder, you know, this is a specific type of loss and, and sometimes we just don't know how to respond. Sure. Um, I'll definitely respond first with the things that aren't helpful to hear. Um, some of these I heard and some of, my, some of them I didn't. Um, but I think a lot of people who go through miscarriage, especially when it's um, like a first trimester miscarriage, uh, some of the response can be, well, it wasn't a real baby yet. Um, 
which is, is devastating. And you can see a heartbeat um, as early as six weeks. So for people who are in a place where they're desiring uh, a pregnancy and seeing that early on, uh, it feels like a very much like a real loss. Um, so that's not helpful to hear. Um, at least you can try again. Um, going through the process that I went through and having it last 10 days and having like excessive amounts of bleeding, there was a time within that um, process where I didn't know if I was going to be able to have another one. And so um, I think that's an assumption that some people make that you, you know, they assume that because you are pregnant and going through this loss that you can get pregnant again. And that doesn't happen for everyone. Um, so I think that's unhelpful <laughs> to hear. Um, for people who might already have children, uh, sometimes you might hear, well, at least you have, you know, one at home or two at home. At least you already have these other ones that you can just be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And that certainly is true. Um, but having, you know, beautiful babies at home doesn't, you know, take away from or negate the fact that it's still a very real loss um, losing uh, a child via miscarriage. Uh, some of the things that are helpful, I think, uh, listening, so just having a place to cry on the phone if you need to, um, you know, what do you need, I think is always a great question, or how can I, how can I help right now? Um, there are people who kind of didn't know what to do, but they sent like meal deliveries and in, in a strange way that was helpful um, because it was like one less thing that I had to think about is, you know, what is everyone going to eat today? Uh, so, you know, I think whatever gestures of kindness that, you know, people do offer, I think are very much appreciated. Um, you know, um, people who may not necessarily understand what, what um, the process of miscarriage is like, but just show up and say, you know, I love you. Um, I'm here for you. Those things are always helpful. There's such a, a, a good theme running through these two things. One is that um, Brene Brown has like a, a short talk um, that is available on YouTube. It's very, um, of just the difference between sympathy and empathy. And the two words that she says are like the biggest indicators of its sympathy and not empathy is at least. And so at least you can have another one. At least you have one at home. Um, you know, those are, are two words that specifically keep us at a distance from someone. And on the flip side, the things that are helpful are the things that, that try to draw near, um, which is especially hard in the season of COVID. A lot of times those things are sending things and, and texting can't feel maybe as intimate as, as would be ideal. But I hear that you still felt some closeness to, to some, some people in your support system. Yes. And I'll also add to that, I just thought of um, my husband. So just in our particular context, we're a heteronormative couple, so I'll say husband. Um, but it's it's not helpful um, for people to simply just focus on like the partner needing to be there for the person who um, has, you know, gone through the miscarriage. I think it was particularly tough for my husband because um, 
we're, we're kind of like nerds. So we do like reading. And so when, you know, in our healing process, we kind of turn to like, okay, what devotionals or books are out there that can be helpful. And all of the ones that were centered specifically on husbands. Um, so that kind of like excluded a lot of people as it is, you know, but specifically centered on husbands, it was all about how to just like be there for your wife Um and none of it was really centered on like you, you have gone through this loss as well. And like, it's okay for you to grieve as a parent. Um, so I think that giving that space um, to partners um, to, to grieve as well, I think is, is very important. Mm. Yeah. That's such a, that's such a great, um, it's almost like just so much around um I think the grief of miscarriage specifically, um, although there are other griefs similar are, is just permission to be able to do it, that there just seems to be something within culture, the way we hear about miscarriage, where we either do this comparative grief thing where we dismiss our own grief because, well, it could have been, you know, worse later on, or other people are going through harder things. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we talk about preparing, um, finding hope and joy and healing, that dismissing, that not giving ourselves permissions, it, it doesn't immediately place us in the place of joy. It's the going through the grief, I think, that places us in a in a place where we can feel that joy amidst the grief. Yeah, I think that permission piece is really, um, really important. Just giving yourself permission to grieve, regardless of what that looks like. I think for me, especially being a pastor, I had to learn how to give myself permission to grieve in certain ways. Um, I was so used to being on the other side of the table, so to speak, and being like the counselor and the guide, um, guiding other people through grief. And now, you know, came time for me to be on that other side of the table. And so just giving me myself the same permission that I give other people to go through the grieving process and all of the emotions um, that that entails, I think, at one point, um, I just remember thinking like, God, why is this happening? But then feeling like guilt almost for asking that question and finding myself kind of saying, well, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be asking that question of God and taking a step back and saying like, right now, I'm not the pastor. <laughs> I'm the grieving mom. And it's okay to ask those questions. And people ask those questions because that frustration, that anger is part of the grieving process. I think I also went through a unique moment where as a pastor, I kind of felt like everything in my faith arsenal was inadequate. And so I felt some guilt around that because surely there was a prayer that I can pray or a scripture that I can read that would just make me feel better. And there wasn't, I mean, it just wasn't coming and I would read scripture and it's like, you know, that's great, but it didn't help. Um, Or I'd read like a devotional. I think I bought, ended up buying three (laughs) within like the, the, like week of um, the miscarriage and it, it wasn't helpful. But what, what was helpful was giving myself permission to just cry and let my crying be all the prayer that I needed and to not feel guilty that in that particular moment, um, you know, 
the scripture wasn't helping or a prayer wasn't helping. What I needed in that moment was just to cry. And, and that was perfectly fine. I, um, I think that connects so well with the story um, from the blog this week of Hannah crying. Um, I love this moment. I, I picture Hannah as a, a woman who has gone through many miscarriages more so than just a, a general struggle of infertility. And then this is just a scriptural imagination. There's no verse we can necessarily point to, but the way that her crying becomes her prayer in even an undignified way, right? Like in a way that it is raw and to the, the unhelpful, uh, men authority figures in the world it is inappropriate um and is so seen and blessed by god um that it becomes the most sincere prayer she can pray because i could see her being the kind of woman who is worshiping and going to the temple and going what am i doing wrong in my faith life that I can't have, have a baby. Um, and I know that some, some of that is uh, the way that we've tied theology to fertility, uh, especially mm -hmm. in that time period. And so my hope isn't that people would hear that from her story, um, but rather would hear that the place for grief is, in, in the temple and, and, and it doesn't have to look right. Yeah. I, um, I appreciate so much about Hannah and I was actually just looking at some of the detailed wording of the text. And I appreciate that at one point, like she's moved to this point of just crying and not eating and like a refusal to be comforted and pacified because in that moment, like, it's it's her grief and it's her story and she's going to let that be known and i appreciate that because i think sometimes in the messiness of grief we can kind of find ourselves in this place of saying well if you have faith then grief has to look a certain way like you can't be in the temple crying while people are worshiping you can't be in there like refusing to eat and be comforted like you have to of course have this you know whatever it is, insert, you know, um, topic there. But I appreciate that in that moment, Hannah is, you know, as you mentioned, like her grief is just her sincere prayer to God and it looks how it looks and no one's going to change that in that moment. And she's, she's going to do what she needs to do in that particular moment. So I appreciate that in a sense, it almost feels like she gave herself permission to be in that place when everyone else around her is like provoking her and giving her all the reasons that she shouldn't cry. Um, she does it anyway and even refuses to eat because that's that that grief is her prayer to God and, and she will not be moved in that moment. And I appreciate that about Hannah. When we talk about Advent and the hope of the coming kingdom, I wonder how the grief, um, the public grieving that happens around events like the death of Ahmaud Arbery, 
Arbery and George Floyd and um, just, you know, I can just be Philando Castile, like all of these names of, of black men who have been um, gunned down and chased or have been um, murdered in the process of arrest. Um, how that grief is an important step for us recognizing the kingdom. Like how is, how is being the person who, who shares our tears and shares our grief rather than pretending it doesn't exist? Uh, how is that an important work of the kingdom? Um, and I wonder if you have some words to say about that. I know you've um, done a lot of beautiful work with the NAACP and St. Pete and, um, so if you have more words to share about that, I would love to hear it. Sure. I'll first say, you know, I grew up United Methodist, and I think that I falsely misunderstood Advent as this time of, like, you know, penitence and, like, self-reflection, but also this time of happiness. So I think oftentimes we think of Advent and even the season of Christmas as something that's supposed to be happy. And so we kind of pre-label it as that. And it doesn't allow room for the grieving and the lamenting that also comes with Advent um, as well. Like, for example, even if we just look at Mary and her, her birth story, right? We think of labor, like labor is intensive and it, it has some, some pretty difficult moments in it and, and uh, mixed emotions. And so I think that um, when we really look at the season of Advent, we have the hope and the love and the peace and the joy. But for um, some of us in our community, it's more of like speaking that into existence and living out our faith in such a way that um, we ensure that hope, joy, peace, and love is um, prevalent for all, although that's not necessarily the case right now. Um, the Mother's Day actually was the first time I preached on lament on Mother's Day. Um, so I had just found out I was pregnant. So I had this, um, excitement, but it was also commingled with the, the televised death of Ahmaud Arbery. And in my particular context, um, I, I was preaching to a predominantly black congregation full of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and grandmothers who I knew had just watched um, this uh, videotape that had been released uh, of the killing of uh, Ahmaud Arbery. And so I took a step back and um, decided to just toss out the sermon that I had already been writing. And I responded specifically to that, to the death of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and so I preached on lament and I preached on the imagery of Rachel weeping for her children that were no more. So talking about what it means communally to acknowledge that we are all grieving right now and our grief might look different. In my particular context, we have also had someone uh, who was a member of our church who was uh, murdered by police uh, during the last three years uh, while I was the pastor of the church. So I knew for some people, it wasn't just seeing this stranger on TV. It was reminding them of something that happened last year to their own son. And so I preached on uh, lament. And for me at the time, uh, one of my just love languages in life is music. I love music. And so I um, interweaved the musical art form of the blues 
And I talked about the history of that and how it kind of emerged from the lament of predominantly black communities in the South going through things, responding through things in life. And I picked one particular song um, and it was about someone singing about their house being flooded, uh, flooded out in the great Mississippi flood. Uh, I can't remember what year now, but so I preached about that and how um, sometimes our, our music to God is lament and, and that's okay. Um, and that part of life is allowing ourselves to feel that as well. And um, Mother's Day for some people is like a great happy holiday with, um, you know, fond memories. And for other people, you know, you, they include all of that as well, but have a lot of grief and, and mourning and um, longing for what could have been. And so really just uplifting the complexity of, of um, people's emotions on Mother's Day, but also saying it's Mother's Day. And if you feel like you're supposed to be happy, but you're not, and you're grieving, let's hold space for that too. And I think really it was the first time that I had ever done that on a Mother's Day. And it was received very well. Uh, by the congregation. We got a lot of feedback, a lot of people who just wept because that's what they needed to do in that moment on Mother's Day. Yeah. And this year, specifically around Christmas time, um, my, I got to um, take my son to the pediatrician for his routine um, checkup. But the last time we went, um, we found out that my pediatrician had lost her mom to COVID mm. and we just had this moment where I was just talking to her about this being the first holiday without her mom. And I, I don't think churches celebrate enough the space for like a longest night service or a blue Christmas service or a space where um, lament is mingled within the joy because the, I think the hope of Advent, um, we focus a lot on the already (laughs) that Jesus has already come and we don't focus enough sometimes on the not yet. And, um, and I think both are important. I don't think we have to go hard on one over the other. I think we have to balance them. Yeah. I think also too, we don't focus enough on the not yet, but we also don't kind of focus enough on like the messiness of Advent too. Mm-hmm. Um, with my first, uh, when I was pregnant with Anaya, I developed some complications um, toward the end of the pregnancy that kind of changed my whole entire birth plan. And so I really relate to Mary and like that, you know, having and birthing baby Jesus the way she did was not her plan. And I almost wonder like, where's the space for Mary to lament that, you know, like we don't talk about that. Like Mary did not plan to have her baby, excuse me, in a barn, right. With smelly, dirty animals and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, You know? And so I know for me um, personally, after I had Anaya, I did kind of lament the fact like that did not go according to plan at all. Um, and, and that was part of the, the healing process too, in, in just healing after her birth. And so I, I think we often overlook that kind of messiness and lamenting that Mary might've even had and nothing going according to plan at all. And then, you know, what ensues afterward and 
um, you know, her having to literally just pick up and, and go for the sake of yeah. you know, the, the survival of her baby, um, that that wasn't, you know, part of the plan either in raising her child, I'm sure. And so uh, I think that we also need to make room for some of that kind of lamenting too, that, you know, what happens when our birth plan or life period just doesn't go according to plan. It's hectic and chaotic and smelly and messy. Like where do we hold room for that in Advent? You know, these are all such good words for us. Um, I wonder if you can share a little bit about um, where you have found hope, uh, you know, how you're feeling now, uh, in Advent. Yeah. Um, so I think about, I think often when I think about Advent, my mind tends to race ahead to things. So I think about, um, not only the birth of Jesus, but why that's significant for me. And so that causes me to think about the whole entire life and ministry of Jesus all at the same time. And I mentioned earlier that when I was going through the miscarriage, that it seemed like nothing in my faith arsenal really helped. No scripture, no prayer. But what was incredibly transformative for me was Holy Communion. And uh, shortly after I started having the miscarriage, I... Um, I had already recorded online worship, but totally forgot that I did not record communion. And so it probably retrospectively wasn't the best idea, but I got up in the middle of what I was going through to record Holy Communion. And um, I had to stop recording because I just started crying um, just, just hysterically in at that moment, feeling like my body was broken. I think sometimes going through loss like that, you feel like you just feel devastated. You feel broken. You feel like um, you, you can have these emotions of like, my body failed me. I'm supposed to like incubate and grow this little baby, but that didn't happen. And so I had this sense of like brokenness. And then of course, going through the cramping and the bleeding um, when I got up to officiate communion, and I read those words, like, this is my body broken for you. And I read, you know, this is my blood <laughs> shed for you. And feeling what I was feeling at the moment, it hit me in a powerful way that I had never seen Holy Communion ever in my whole entire life. And I think it has transformed the way I will always see communion from this point forward. Um, and so for me, that was it was literally the only thing that I um, experienced in that week and month that reminded me just of who Jesus was in the midst of my grief and in the midst of my pain, that Jesus was the one who was broken so that even when I felt broken, um, I could know that Jesus was with me. And Jesus was the one whose blood was shed. And even as, as I'm going through like the messiness of the process of miscarriage, knowing that uh, Jesus was with me in the midst of that. And I think about that moment and I think about Holy Communion, even as I think about uh, the birth of Jesus in Advent, because I think they're, they're not isolated. The birth of Jesus matters because of the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. So um, that gave me extreme hope in the midst of uh, the loss of our second child and in the months and weeks after. And even right now, I think I, I go back in my mind and in my spirit and in my heart to that place of communion. And it has sustained me in a way that I could have never imagined. Well, 
I'm gonna have to end our conversation because I don't know if I'm gonna be able to keep it together <laughs> because that's just such a beautiful, you know, one of the questions I forgot to ask, but I think you answered it in such a beautiful way was one of the things I was wondering about was those rituals that help go through grief and to hear about how a sacred ritual like communion can be that thing. Um, it binds us to Jesus at the table and Jesus experience. Um, and I just, I really appreciate you sharing so vulnerably. I hope that this is helpful for other people who have felt broken, whether it's through their own losses and pregnancy or whether it's just through our messiness of, of life that we can feel so broken. Yeah. I think it's important definitely to feel all of the emotions and also the reminder that even when we feel broken, like we are still whole in, in Christ Jesus. Um, yeah, that, that communion story is the first time I shared that without crying. And I think it even just reminds me of just the profound hope that it has given me when nothing else, like literally nothing else, um, had given me that hope. It was Holy Communion. And, um, as I mentioned, it has literally just forever changed the way that I, I view and engage with communion. Thank you so much, Jonna, and blessings to you and your growing family. Um, I'm glad that, uh, that you've been able to find some peace in the the growth of this little one and we'll pray that that you'll continue to see see God's plan through and hopefully it'll be the same one that you started with yeah <laughs> hopefully and prayerfully so but yeah I, I've enjoyed um, sharing this and I definitely hope that um, it will bring hope or peace or comfort uh, even if just temporary to someone who, who hears it. So I'm grateful. Well, thanks, Jonna.